0: Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. My guest, Barbara Becker, today is someone I am so excited to talk about. This podcast is actually being recorded right after my podcast with Ian Thomas about what makes us human dropped. So if you haven't listened to that yet, make sure to listen to that because this podcast and her book felt so similar to me in, in the way in which she embraced death and talked about death and helped me sort of journey with her through these beautiful relationships. So just a little bit about Barbara. Barbara is the founder of Equal Shot, a strategic communications consultancy specializing in strengthening the voice for the non-for-profit community. For over 25 years, she has served as a broad range of institutions, including the United Nations, Human Rights First, and the Foundation for Women, and the Gramman Bank of Bangladesh. She has taught on the faculty of Columbia University's Master's Program in Strategic Communication and has been a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. Becker holds a Master's of Arts in International Administration from the School for International Training, a Master's of Arts in Media Studies from the New School, and a Bachelor's of Arts in Sociology and Anthropology from Haverford College. An ordained interfaith minister, she lives in New York City with her husband and two sons. Her beautiful book, and when I say beautiful, it is, I just finished it right before we got on and I was had tears in my eyes as I got on with Barbara. It's called Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. Welcome, Barbara. I could really, really use your help. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to my season five opener, go back and listen to that. I need your support you can go to Patreon and put in Dr. Amy Robbins. And there you can find different levels in which you can support the podcast financially. At this point, I have no ads, I have no sponsors, and it would really, really help me out if you've gotten something out of this podcast, if you could donate $5, $10, $5, $10, or even $20 a month to help support the podcast. I'm continuing to work, to try to get sponsors, to try to get advertisers. But until that happens, I need your help. And there are other ways to support the podcast. You can like the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can rate and review the podcast. I always love reading your reviews. They're really Heartwarming to me, and it's the emotional currency that I get from providing you with this resource. So please, please take a moment, help me out here. You can also find the links in the episode notes as well as on my website at dramirobbins.com. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy robbins. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so gushing. We were talking before just about. How beautiful this book is. Can you walk me through, walk us through how you wrote this book, how it came to be, and really what, what is at the crux of it for all of us? Which is what's at the crux of all of our lives, right? That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Yes. So, Heartwood is
1: actually a series of stories about our mortality and people who I have loved and lost in my life. Um, centered around this metaphor of heartwood. I mean, heartwood is, um, I just find this so beautiful. I discovered the metaphor of heartwood after both of my parents died. And I was walking through an old growth forest with my husband. And I learned that inside every tree is a pillar that is more durable than the rest of the tree. It's called heartwood and you know it's the part that's prized by woodworkers. But the thing that people don't know about heartwood is that that's the dead part of the tree. It's totally inert. Now it no longer participates in the flow of water and nutrients up and down the tree, but the growth rings of the tree wouldn't be able to grow around it if it weren't for that solid durable core. And when I discovered that, I thought, oh, my gosh, we people are so much like the trees. I mean, the people who we've lost and loved form that enduring essence within us. And we get to grow around the lessons and the memories. What a beautiful metaphor. It really worked because what it did was it enabled me to tell the story of loss and the story of love. So the the heartwood and the growth rings of the book are people like my dear friend, Marissa. Marissa starts the book. She was my earliest childhood friend. And when she was about 30, she was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. and. She lived in a way that really surprised me with that diagnosis. I and mean, she ended up with even more vitality than she already had. I mean, she was going to use whatever time she had left on earth, um, you know, to live richly and be with the people she loved. She married her college sweetheart, even though they knew that she didn't have a lot of time left to live. and Between chemo treatments, she went to Italy, which was her family's ancestral homeland. So Marissa was living this beautiful life, but I was extremely anxious. I mean, I knew I was gonna lose one of my best friends. I was extrapolating like, oh no, someday I'll lose other people who are dear to me, like my parents. And I started thinking about my own mortality a lot as well. I was kind of obsessed.
0: So (laughs) as I think maybe we both are,
1: (laughs) I think that's right. I mean, you can't go through that with a loved one and not end up in some of these bigger existential questions. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting so many books. I was like, other people have had to have dealt with this throughout time. And what do they teach us about mortality? And so I read everything. I got really interested in the teachings of the Buddha. I read the Stoic philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. I read Henry David Thoreau, and there's a lot in Walden about mm-hmm. this. And And you reference that a lot in the book, the Walden references. I do. My dad loved Henry David Thoreau so much. And I ended up with um, almost religion around Thoreau. I've learned so much from, from him and his life lessons because his brother died in his arms. And that was really the reason why he went to Walden Pond in the first place. Huh. Um. Yeah. So all of these these wise people, they teach us that if you want to live life as fully as you possibly can, you have to start with the end in mind. You have to fully face your mortality. And it's in that that we learn how to reprioritize and decide what's important for the time that we
0: do have. And how do you think we do that? Obviously, we're a culture of death denial in so many ways. How do you think we can address the end in mind when it isn't imminent? You know, I think we say this a lot. I say it too. I try to do it in my life. But I also think it's different when you get a terminal diagnosis or any diagnosis or you're faced with the possibility. I mean, I almost sometimes find even when I'm just sick, and I have like a flu or something. That actually can take me there pretty quickly because it shows me how quickly I can, I should value my health. But how do you think we do that? We can do that every day.
1: Oh, I am so glad you brought that up. I'm just getting over COVID myself. And I, I spent many, many days just lying in bed with that God. There was a great teacher by the name of Stephen Levine, and he actually wrote a book called A Year to Live way back, you know, a couple decades ago, I believe. And he said he encouraged people to actually live with the common cold. I mean, before we mm-hmm. reach for the bottle of cold medicine, what would it be like to actually kind of sink into it for a while and to think that someday we might? be in that level of pain. I mean, not to torture ourselves, but to just, like you said, we brush it aside so easily and we have medications and we have all kinds of things that like help us get away from from things that are uncomfortable with our bodies. But well, what would it be like to just kind of sit in it? I also pay attention to endings a lot in my life, more than I ever did before, because I think they're, they, they help illustrate the point, which is that like, If my kids are going off to school or my husband's going to the grocery store, I used to spend a lot of time just kind of calling out over my shoulder, bye, you know, Mm -hmm. and now I really make it a practice to stop what I'm doing and to get up and to say goodbye to people like, like right in the eyes, nothing hugely dramatic, but just paying attention to how we end things. I think we can do that too. So it doesn't have to be like the big, big questions about mortality. We can start small.
0: Well, and I just want to take the listeners to a part of the book towards the end as your, I can't remember if it was your mother or father. I think it was when your dad was dying. And this is kind of what you were just talking about. Try to think about each symptom as a temp, you were talking about it in the, in the face of anxiety that you were feeling, but Try to think about each symptom as attempting to communicate an important message. If you are having trouble taking a deep breath, consider how the body is trying to remind you that you must breathe more intentionally throughout all of this. If your legs tense up, think about the way they are preparing you to run and explore what it is that you are running from. Sadness, fear, resentment. It's an exquisitely sensitive system designed like an alarm. If you are not registering some aspect of danger, it will get louder and louder until it's convinced that you are. Welcome it all. And I think even what you were saying about the flu, like whatever it is that ails you can tie into this as well. Yes, I I have been surprised by the number of people
1: who've read Heartwood and said to me, you know, I haven't lost anybody yet to death but I lost my job during COVID, or I was forced to move, or somebody was telling me about a beautiful piece of jewelry that meant so much to her from her grandmother that she lost. I mean, we have so many ways that we lose things in our lives that all add up to this, the sort of ultimate big questions around loss. I like that you picked out that passage. It's one that I myself went back to and had to reread because on the day that Heartwood was released into the world, its book birthday, I was actually having surgery for breast cancer myself. Mm -hmm. It was newly diagnosed and um, complete surprise. And uh, I was sort of forced to go back and look at some of my own writing and the lessons that the people in the book had to teach me about about loss and um you know during that time i also had a really important lesson from a friend who has ms and i was kind of going on and on about how i was unsure of the future and Uh, you know, would I see my kids graduate and get married someday and my head was spinning. And he said to me, you know, Barbara, it sure sounds like you're writing chapter 24 of your life when you're only on chapter four. Mm. And wow, did that have the ability to just like cut right into, you know, where I was and, and how we do that to ourselves all the time. Now, in Buddhism, there's this story about the second arrow. You know, the first arrows of life are the things that are unavoidable. You know, the illnesses, the loss, and they sting and they burn. But the second arrow is the one that we shoot at ourselves, where we just keep going on and on. And we let our heads tell us all of these stories that aren't necessarily true. And that's the kind of
0: suffering that we can control in life. Do you find in your exploration, and as you wrote this book, that Buddhism, I know you trained for your hospice work through Koshin, who I interviewed not long ago, and their, what is their center called? The Zen? It's called the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. And do you find that Buddhism for you, or in general, as you, you reviewed texts and um, teachings on death, has sort of the best ability to help explain philosophically and understand how to integrate death into life?
1: Some of the teachings in Buddhism just get right to the core of this whole question about our frailty as as bodies. Monks used to meditate in charnel grounds, which were places where bodies were placed above the ground so that vultures and wild beasts would come and consume them and they would decay right in front of the monks and it was an intentional although really intense practice of seeing that you know we too are of the nature to die and this too will happen to my body someday You know, in Zen temples all around the world, every night, they say something called the evening gata, the evening prayer. And it ends with, let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly by and opportunity is lost. On this night of our lives, the days decrease by one. Each of us should strive to awaken. Do not squander your life. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> talk about
0: a contemplative death practice, right?
1: Yes, yes. It's it's the whole tradition all around the world. So that says something.
0: Well, and you talk also about the nine contemplations by Atisha, that all of us will die sooner and later. Your lifespan, this is it, right? Your lifespan is decreasing continuously death will come whether you are prepared or not. Your lifespan is not fixed. Death has many causes. Your body is fragile and vulnerable. Your loved ones cannot keep you from death. At the moment of your death, your material resources are of no use to you, and your body cannot help you at the time of your death. What a practice, right? I actually took a course
1: in Buddhism on what's called the Satipatthana Sutra, which is where the death sutras come from in the ancient texts. The teacher had us watch together an autopsy. I had never seen anything like that before. It was very sacred. And we did it in the container of being together as a class with a lot of time for processing. It's sort of one of those things you shouldn't go on YouTube and try to find alone because it's very hard. Mm -hmm. But these are some of the practices that a
0: student goes on and on in years studying Buddhism they might encounter. Well, and I also found even in just reading your book and being conscious of the experience I was having while reading it, I found that there was a part of me at times that wanted to turn away. You know, and as much as I'm I feel like I'm immersed in death and talk about it pretty freely and openly and comfortably, the emotions that it will continue to bring up for me, I'm assuming until that day, was still so powerful. And finding myself wanting to kind of push away from that or not look at that continues to show me how much work I still have to do around it. And I was wondering too, because the last chapter of your book is about Barbara. And your, you know, your kind of push pull in the same vein, I'm wondering how you how you feel about it, how you how comfortable do you feel really with that, because sometimes I think I'm like, maybe just a fraud here, like I talk about it. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm immersed in it. But like, I still there was a part of me that still when I was reading your book was like, yeah, maybe I'll put this down. This isn't this is intense.
1: Yeah, it sure can be. And I think a lot of people read it sort of chapter by chapter with some space in between in order to have some breathing room. And book groups have told me that they, they really appreciate just reading it together so that they can share stories with one another afterwards and really process the emotions that this can bring up. hmm I think one of the things that I've been so privileged to learn from people who are dying, and i've I've now sat with like hundreds of people at the end of their lives because um, you hosp- became a hospice volunteer. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like through the New York Zen Center, I was assigned to the hospice floor at Bellevue, which is our largest
0: public hospital in New York. Which I only know for psychiatric care because they've got like a major, major psych. I don't know if they still do, but certainly.
1: They do. And it's a level one trauma center. I mean, it's it's one of our amazing public institutions. And what I love about it is that we have patients representing the diversity of the world because they've come to New York from absolutely everywhere. And I think one of the things that I have learned that's really helped me think about mortality is Every person has brought some kind of nugget to my understanding. So one day I had a young woman um, patient who was was dying alone. She was from New Zealand. Um, She was indigenous Maori. And she had come to New York for an art fellowship and she got sick and, and there were no family members there. And one day she said to me, you know, Barbara, you think I'm alone, but I'm really not. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, in our tradition, we believe that the ancestors gather around our bedside as we're dying. And I know they're here to help me. They're here to lend a hand and bring me over to the other side. And I think about that, you know, that's, that is, you know, a tradition from the other side of the world that has changed my own perception of death and ancestors. And the very idea that my parents, for instance, and Marissa are still with me all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: And how do you feel present? Because I know, you. I mean, you did talk in several places in the book, it seemed to me, Sometimes you referred to it, sometimes you didn't, but I was reading it through this lens of the synchronicities that seemed to kind of show up repeatedly, even just around like the turtle, the sea turtle. Yes. That, and maybe you could talk about that experience and also with Felix. So maybe you could talk about both those experiences and with your parents
1: and yeah. how they
0: they sort of showed up after they died. I don't know if you would if you would refer to it as showing up, but Yeah, really such rich
1: territory because I do believe that the longer we're around those moments of awe and allow ourselves into like complete presence strange things start happening you know and they're not coincidences anymore but they're really synchronicities and i don't know how they could be otherwise so um, you are the very first person who asked me about the turtles and i love that (laughs) (laughs) there's a a chapter in heartwood about um, a sea turtle my husband and i were on vacation in florida and we were walking along the coast And I just had a sense that we would encounter a giant turtle, you know, it was the middle of the day and sea turtles aren't very common to that area. Mm -hmm. And they also don't come out in the middle of the day. It's dangerous for them. And sure enough, a giant sea turtle was right along the shore. And um, we sat down to watch it and um, it was still alive, but it was clear that something had happened. It had a bit of a gash in it. And we sat with that turtle and it it eventually died. And my husband was like, I don't know about you. You're like, you are really called to be with the dying. <laughs> right, right. You're like on vacation. Can I get a
0: break from this, please? <laughs> <laughs>
1: But you know the same it was interesting on that very same vacation we were on the other coast of of Florida and I was walking with a friend And once again, we came across this giant mound in the sand. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's another turtle. And we went up to it. And it was a leatherback. And it was laying its eggs. And the ranger came by and said, you know, this doesn't happen. Like, normally, the sea turtle lays its eggs and is already back in the water because it's the middle of the day. And I just thought, well, there it is. I mean, we have death. And we have birth, mm-hmm. and that circle of life and death goes on and on. And it was it was an extraordinary
0: teaching, and so synchronistic. I mean, when you think about what you said that this wasn't a common thing for turtles, and for them to be la- one to be dying, one to be birthing, like what are the chances of that? How yeah. do we? Un- and if you're not paying attention, you miss these moments in life, these moments of awe and magic that are, I think, there to always be teaching us beautiful lessons.
1: Yes. I think that one of the most important lessons we can learn in life is just how to show up moment by moment by moment, Um, even when that moment is not so appealing, you know, <laughs> I love the Taoists. They say that this is a world of ten thousand joys and ten thousand sorrows, and um, you know, we have this idea of toxic positivity in our society. like we're always looking for the silver linings. We always want things to be better and brighter and younger. And when we do that, we deny those moments of presence where there is sorrow. And it's not that we want to dwell in them forever, but we want to learn to do the dance between the positives, the negatives, because the negatives might not be so negative and
0: the positives Mm -hmm. might not be so positive.
1: Like there's so much wisdom in the present.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about, can you tell us about Felix and also your parents and those synchronicities? Sure. (laughs) Sure.
1: I actually grew
0: up in a house with a real skeleton in the closet.
1: Um, Felix was my grandfather's medical school skeleton. It was the skeleton that was assigned to him in the early 1900s. And back in that day, they weren't expected to return the skeleton. It was supposed to go on with you to your medical office. So Felix grew up in the house that my dad was a little boy in, and when my so grandfather, back in the day they
0: didn't have the plastic skeletons. They that didn't they have now plastic have. It was skeletons. Like the, real, the real
1: deal. <laughs> the real deal. A real skeleton. So after my grandfather died. I grew up in a house with a real skeleton. We called him Felix. And he was like a benevolent presence in (laughs) our house. Like my family adored Felix. And I learned so much from Felix um growing up. I mean, I really was the kid, like Hamlet, like I would sit there with a human skull in my hands <laughs> and wiggle his teeth and um it just didn't seem odd to me because it had always been that way and you know, after my parents died, we thought, okay, you know, who is going to take Felix now? I didn't I didn't really have room for him in my New York City,
0: like <laughs> limited closet. And- Opening up your closet and Felix is just hanging there, hanging out, <laughs> <laughs> sitting on your couch like- when you come home at the end of the day. <laughs>
1: exactly. So, you know, my mom was so funny. She said, you know, when I die, just put Felix's bones with my bones. And um, I actually talked to a, a green funeral director and I was like, is that is that kosher? Can you do that? And she said, no, no, you need a death certificate. And like, there's nothing to do but to return this body to the state medical examiner. So that's what we did. We wrapped up Felix in a blanket and I wrote in a little note into the box that said, you know, Felix, has been with us for over a hundred years and we've loved him. And if you could tell us what happens to him, I would, I would be so grateful. And the next thing, you know, a um, forensics uh, teacher, an anatomy teacher from the local high school where my brother's kids go to school has received Felix as a teaching tool from the state medical examiner, and has spruced him up and rewired his jaw. And, and so Felix, like, you know, went back to school and is still with your nieces. Yes. (laughs) That's just unbelievable to me. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, I'm actually adapting that story for a children's book, because I think that we need to talk to kids about death and about bodies. And I think there's so much opportunity in sort of a playful story to explain what it is to, um, donate a body to medical science, um, and also like organ donation,
0: for instance. Mm -hmm. In your family, how was death dealt with? Your father was a physician. Your mother was, was she a nurse? Yes. Yeah. She was a nurse. Like it, it was, you had Felix living with you.
1: (laughs) And we talked about, um, you know, my father often brought home stories of blood and gore, not to horrify us, but to sort of educate us. Those were like dinner table conversations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the really emotional things around death in my family was that my father had actually been married to a, a woman before he was married oh, to right. my mom.
0: I remember this because I read the first per- remember I was supposed to interview you a while back and then had that whole court situation. I remember because I read the first part of the book and then finished it this week. So yes, that was tragic.
1: It was tragic. And I discovered um, Maureen while I was kind of snooping around in my dad's wallet when I was just in third grade. And I saw that he had a photograph tucked behind the picture of my mom. And I kind of carefully pulled it out and I saw a picture of another woman who was very young. And my mom kind of came home and caught me in the act. And I was like, who is this woman in dad's wallet? And she said, you know, your dad had been married to this woman who lived in England um, where my dad was studying and shortly after their honeymoon she was killed in a tragic boating accident like on a beautiful day it took a long time for the full story to come out because my parents were really good about giving age appropriate information and you know the more i learned about maureen and her death the more i was just amazed i mean i was especially amazed by my mother and her resilience, because rather than sort of pushing Maureen aside, like a woman who would never age, who was, you know, beautiful, and they never had like, even the luxury of an argument. Mm -hmm. um, You know, my mom would actually have a wreath laid at Maureen's grave every single Christmas, for as long as my mom lived. I mean, how beautiful is that?
0: Wow. Talk about welcoming death and allowing it to live parallel to your life.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a a chapter and I won't I won't tell the whole story, but at the very end, my dad takes us to England to meet Maureen's family, to meet her parents and her sister's. And my mom could have put her foot down and said, no, that's weird. Like that's, you know, another lifetime ago. And why would you subject your children to that? But she thought, you know, my dad needed closure and she thought we could handle it. And talk about like beauty and awe and wonder. Something absolutely amazing happens when we go to their house and, and pay a visit to Maureen's family.
0: Your parents died quite close together. Yes how far apart were their deaths
1: just a little over 2 months apart okay
0: and your your father died from metastatic cancer yes right? he also had alzheimer's disease which was so interesting too as you talked about it because when you when you talked about bringing him to the hospital it wasn't his treatment it was his scan his scans his ability even with alzheimer's to go to to know things I I found that fascinating just in terms of of life and our brains and how they work and um, his ability to one, read the scan and know what was happening before anyone else knew what was happening. And two, I think there was a code to a, a room, a special, a room that he had worked in Yes. Yeah. Visiting my dad, the hospital where he had worked
1: for all of those years was, was just so moving to me. I mean, my dad studied the brain and his biggest fear was alzheimer's disease Mm. you know he would say like if that ever happens to me put a pillow over my head you know because he had watched his mom and his mother-in-law my grandmothers both go through dementia and alzheimer's and he just wanted absolutely nothing to do with it of course but when my father developed alzheimer's it was so interesting like he was just absolutely curious about what was happening to his brain. Like it wasn't like the depressing thing that he thought it would be. He, He really like kind of lived into the like, wow, what's going on? This is how the human brain works. There was... Like I do not want to glorify that disease because it is really horrible in so many ways, mm-hmm. but it also took some of the edge off of the metastatic cancer that he had simultaneous to it. And he always said he would be a terrible patient if he was in pain. And and somehow in his sort of fogginess um, mentally, he was just different than I would have imagined he would be with another terrible
0: prognosis. Do you believe your mom died of a broken heart? No <laughs> um, People ask me that a
1: lot. Uh-huh. There's this assumption that the the spouse who who dies shortly afterwards is is dying because of a broken heart. and I know there's actually a syndrome of of dying of literal uh, literally a broken heart, but my mom wanted to live so badly. I mean, she adored her grandkids. She was a volunteer at a nursing home down the street. Um, she spent so much time with her brothers and sisters of which she had many. Um, she, she loved to walk around the wild flower garden that she planted outside the house. She was such a deep lover of life. And she said to me that she had so much more to live. So um, you know, in so many ways, it just felt tragic to me that we lost her so shortly after my dad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was very powerful for me to read because I really, I also really identified with your parents in so many ways because they sounded like my parents are like a real vibrance for life and wanting to live and and even my grandparents even after they lost a child still had this zest for the beauty in life and the sunsets and just like would would you know say that they stopped at like a Denny's on the side of the road and had the most amazing hamburger and we were like it was wow. a Denny's like
1: <laughs> how amazing
0: could it be they just like really appreciated life and people and connection and it sounds like in the same way yours did and so that that part of the book where she's dying and you know she would have wanted to live. How do you negotiate that, especially having worked in hospice for so long? And I think so many people, right, struggle with like, you can say when it's your time, it's your time. Those are all platitudes. But yeah. when you know someone really wants to live and, and it is their time. Yeah.
1: Oh my goodness, it was not easy. One of the things that helped me a lot was that my husband and I gave our kids a choice, like to come and to be with my mom when she was dying, because she was dying at home, and uh, or that it would be perfectly fine to not come. They had just seen her at Thanksgiving. Both boys decided to come. We kind of gathered around my mom's bedside and we sang every single darn Christmas hymn you could ever imagine because they were her favorite music. And when she was able to, she told us her life stories. People have this very interesting way of doing what's called a life review. Like they sort of spontaneously tell these amazing stories, some of which you've never heard before
0: as they're dying you've you've seen this before yes in the days leading up
1: to maybe not the the last moments but yes over and over again people just love to sort of reconcile their lives and to tell the stories and to leave the the treasures behind One of the things my mom said that I will carry with me always is that, you know, it was as she was leaving the hospital to come home and be on hospice, a nurse had said, you should really put your your valuables away, like if you have anything, because they tend to disappear in a hospital, she said. And my mom looked at her and she said, all my valuables walk on two feet. And I just love that. I was like, mom, <laughs> you know, wow. that's beautiful. I Googled it I, you know, to see if anybody had ever said that before. And nobody has to my knowledge, like all my valuables walk on two feet. Oh, it was such a pearl of my mom's brand of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that I choose to hold on to when I think about what the end was like for her. I was the person administering morphine frequently and cleaning up when she had soiled herself. And those, those things are so vivid in my mind, but they also tend to fade more so than, than the treasures that she left.
0: Do you, did you find sitting bedside in your volunteer role that you got many of these treasures as people were moving towards their death? I've been privy to
1: a lot of amazing stories that people will tell, but there's nothing like the stories that somebody you know will tell you, maybe because of your shared history. When Marissa was dying, we talked about so many of our favorite moments from childhood. I mean, some were just absolutely ridiculous, like you know, letting our brothers ride their little, like little scooters off a ramp and like right over us, like evil evil, you know, <laughs> like, I don't, we just laughed and we laughed and being at the end of someone's life to me feels like a sacred moment so many times.
0: So I want to end with this. I have learned that being open to death is a powerful way to learn about living. That when we stop pretending we will live forever, a certain tightness begins to loosen. Slowly, we give ourselves permission to relax the vice grip we use to control our circumstances. A sense of freedom emerges from within. Though little may have changed on the outside, and loss will continue to be our companion, our internal landscape is renewed. Just as we cherish ourselves more, we will cherish others more as well. Sometimes as the great masters have taught we have to die before we die if we want to truly live. Your words are so I'm thinking as because we were talking earlier about my book. I'm like, "Do you want to ghostwrite my book because your words are so beautiful. They're just um. so powerful and transformative and I think if if anybody hopefully you will all buy this book because it really is each chapter is so powerful, but that if we can integrate these words into our lives, I do believe it can transform. It's such
1: an honor to hear those words read by you. Um, and I can't wait for your book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read you a passage of your own book and you'll see how wondrous it is. <laughs> that, that sounds like a deal.
0: Barbara, are there any kind of parting words you want to give my listeners in terms of how to live with death with the end in mind?
1: I would say, take it small and really show up. And you don't have to ask, what would I do if I had a year left to live? But what if this hour were my last? Like, what if our goodbye to one another right now? were our last. So I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you. And I love what you're doing. And the more beautiful voices that we can add to this whole movement of demystifying death just helps everyone. So I honor you.
0: Thank you. I feel the same way, you know, just so connected to you and your work and your humanity. It's just so beautiful to see you put it all out there in such a vulnerable, real, genuine way that I think speaks to what it really means to be human. So thank you. Thank you. We're both going to be like weeping (laughs) on the floor after this interview. today. I think I already am. Yeah, which is how I almost started the interview. So Barbara, thank you so much. If my listeners want to know more about you, where can they find you? Where can they find your work? I have a website, barbarabecker.com. There's a reader's guide for Hartwood there and a lot of resources as well. Thank you so much for this time today and for this space. It was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Like what you heard today and wanna to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.